0: Wouldn't it be nice if we could know how all of our decisions would turn out? That'd be, that'd be handy sometimes. You know, they make something that does that. Uh, if you're familiar with it, it's this little round black ball. And you shake it, you turn it over, and you can find out anything you want to know. I mean, I remember as a kid shaking it and you ask all these questions. Now in high school, that was really handy because what was the, the burning question of high school? Does, does she like me? And you didn't even have to ask. You could just go to your 8-ball. Will she say yes? And you shake it and it's like, yes, she will. And so you go ask her out and she's guaranteed to say yes. What was the problem with that? She said, no. (laughs) It doesn't control people. That little silly ball didn't understand anything. And, And so to hope in something like that, to trust in something like that for our decisions is is really difficult because it doesn't work. It fails, like the smartphones. Do they have an app like that? That I bet they do. That could be handy. High schoolers, they just solve all of your problems. <laughs> Siri, Siri, does she? Never mind. <laughs> Throughout history, we've had all kinds of issues, turning a little more serious. Of who do we trust? Who don't we trust? How do we know what decisions will lead where? And how do we know what decisions we should make? Just before World War II, as, as Hitler was rising to power, he made one of the most interesting alliances that you can think of, and, and some would say the most deceptive alliances. He was concerned about fighting a war on two fronts, and, and he, he knew he was going to go west first, and so he went to Russia and made an alliance with Stalin on his east flank. Now there's two upstanding guys. Now, he knew all along that eventually he was going to attack Russia. It was part of his plan, and and we we have that written out. And he made this alliance, and Stalin thought, okay, I'm a little nervous about the German war machine. This gives me time. And so they made this alliance knowing that that this was not a good alliance, sort of like when you, some of you have said, when you play me in risk, but that's a whole different. um. (laughs) They made this non-aggression pact. Now, as it goes on, we know that that Hitler went and and he campaigned against the West and he had this non-aggression pact on the East. And finally, when when he felt he was where he wanted to be there, he turned and he fought Russia. And he broke the alliance and he attacked. And he's thinking, oh, Stalin's just going to roll over and play dead because he thinks I'm not going to attack. We have an alliance. But it wasn't a good alliance and Stalin knew it. Stalin was just as deceptive as Hitler. And so he was ready for them. And like attacking a bulldog, they fought. And it was devastating destruction to both countries, actually. It was a, a betrayal and an alliance and a deception that didn't work because the foundation of it was not true. The foundation was something that could not withstand time, that could not withstand truth. Today we want to talk a little about trusting and alliances and who do we trust? And for the last three, four weeks now, this whole section has been on trusting God. And, and last week we went through seven different nations and oracles against the nations. And God said, ah, oh, you want to trust them? Hey, this is where their sin's going to lead them. They're dead. Don't trust them. And then he went on to the next nation and he did this over and over and over. And he's showing his supremacy above the nations and that trusting in those nations is ultimately destructive and disastrous. And we went through those seven. Today we're going to go through five more nations. And, and we're going to move ahead about ten years. And, and, and Isaiah is writing again. And and I've got to say, the nation names are different, the um, but the issues are the same. And we're going to see some of the same issues just with different names and different nations because we are tempted as a people to trust in anything but God. We are tempted to trust in self and my own ability. We are tempted to trust in money and in wealth. And we are tempted to trust in our plans and our fortifications in our life and and how we've arranged it where we can't be hurt. But in the end, none of those last because none of them are permanent. And so God here brings us back through Isaiah to say, I am the only one you can trust. Why are you chasing and standing in quicksand? I am the only one that is a stable foundation. But he, it's a hard lesson to get. I love how um, a couple of the authors viewed this section of Isaiah as as trust lessons. And we remember our, our history from Ahaz. Remember Ahaz, king of Judah, was, was um, being attacked from the north. They wanted him to join them against Assyria. And instead, he made a brilliant alliance with Assyria. Let's just pet the tiger. And the the tiger ends up biting his hand off and and taking his nation away. It was a a stupid alliance or or attacking his nation. And it didn't work out because he didn't trust God. And now we're moving ahead through these trust lessons and we're hoping that the kings of Judah get it. And, And what we're going to see today is we're getting close to the time when Hezekiah has to make the same choice. We're probably either in the middle of a siege where, where Assyria is at the gates of Jerusalem or we're right before that. But Hezekiah has to choose, do I trust God or do I trust myself? And these five today all are a package that deal with that at that specific time. Possibly even some of the messages that Isaiah gave King Hezekiah as he was making this decision. Before we get there, though, I want to jump and finish the, the chapters from last week. Because Isaiah is doing a marvelous job of showing us the the, the despair of the day, despair of the day, but then matching it with the hope of the future. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 16 where we left off. Isaiah 19 verse 16. Please open up your Bibles. We're going to be going through a number of chapters quickly again this week. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the seat right in front of you. You're welcome to take that today. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. And that is your Bible. So Isaiah chapter 19. And where we pick it up is right after right after the oracles against these seven nations. The last nation that he, he condemned was Egypt. Because of their idols, their money, their wisdom, these things that they were trusting in. And God's saying, that's foolish. That's stupid. I know... I don't have my kids say that word, but in this case it fits. Those can't save you because those don't last. But in verse 16, we get a picture of the end. We get a picture of hope. And so I I put that in your notes, hope. It's in the future, there will be unified worship from all who believe. And whenever we see at the beginning of 16 the words, in that day, we have to ask the question, what's that day? And, and it's used several different ways in Isaiah. And here, we get, as we read through this paragraph, we see that the events that are mentioned here have not happened yet, even now. And so these are in the future, either in the millennial reign or the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus comes back and reigns and makes things right. But it serves to give us hope. So let's start at verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble and fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. And we see God's sovereignty there. And with what he's describing, this universal worship, the first part, the first in that day, is that it, it will start with the fear of the Lord. And wisdom and worship always starts with the fear of the Lord. And in this case, it's fear. This isn't just a, oh, God is great. This is, God is great and I'm trembling under His hand because of my sin. Which the fear of the Lord always means. And so the Egyptians, someday in the future, will fear the Lord. They will tremble under His hand. They will recognize what He's doing. But then it goes on, and there's a series of in that days in this this paragraph And this gives us hope. The next one, verse 18, In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. And we see a progression here. It started with the fear of the Lord, and now there's five cities that are following God and fearing God in Egypt. Then it goes on in verse 19, the next in that day. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. You're like What? That's never going to happen. When they cry out to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and a Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, that they will return to the Lord and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And so the third in that day is this broad turning to God throughout Egypt. And and He's using Egypt as a description of what's going to happen in that day in the entire world. As Jesus reigns, people will turn to Him or they will be judged. And it goes on in verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. This is sort of like the wolf will be with the lamb. And it's describing this time where people will come to Christ of all nations in all the world and worship God. There's no race differences here, no hostility. They are co-heirs in the eternal inheritance. And then verse 24, it goes on. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. <laughs> and Israel probably was like, what? A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And we see in these, these series of, of events in that days that all who follow God will eventually worship together. And, and this is in the middle of all these oracles against these countries and nations and saying they don't follow God, all is lost, and all this destruction. And God says, but wait, there is still hope. In the middle of all this darkness, there is still hope. And if you remember when we did the introduction to Isaiah, I had some volunteers holding a, a piece of yarn up here. And this yarn representing human history with creation over here. And we saw the breadth of human history. And we come down to Isaiah's time and there's some darkness here. Little blips of darkness here. And, and we see that sin has reigned in the world and sin has spread in the world. And Isaiah is seeing this and wondering if Israel will survive and watched the northern kingdom go into exile has already prophesied that the southern kingdom will go into exile soon. And then we went on and we saw the work of Christ and the cross that is ultimately the answer. And as we got to the end of the yarn, the end of the picture is the, the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth, that with Christ, He will reign, sin will be extinguished, victory will come, and we will worship the King together. That we need to keep in mind in Isaiah. And what he's doing in 19, he's bringing us back to this part of the string. And saying, remember, remember all is not lost. The story doesn't end there. That's part of my plan to get you to here. And oh, when we are in the middle of it, we need to remember that same thing. We are just experiencing a little, little speck on this line of God's work. And in the end, God wins and He's victorious and we are with Him in eternity. That is the hope that crushes darkness. And so he's doing that here in 19 as he finishes this really depressing passage that we talked about last week where nation after nation after nation gets destroyed because they have let sin reign in their nation. However, there's a but here. There's a however. In verse 20 through chapter 20, verse 1, the first six verses there, seven verses... um, see that Egypt is still facing punishment. And this is one of the more unique sections of Isaiah. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. That is commitment to serving the Lord. Not something I'm going to do this morning. But God loved to use object lessons. And some of the authors say maybe he still had a loincloth or something, but God used object lessons and catch this lesson. And the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And all the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? And understand here, God is trying to teach Israel, trust me, not the nations. And so right at this point, Israel's considering alliance with Egypt because to the south, they're a power. And so Egypt and Cush down there was a hope for, for Israel. Maybe they will help us. The beginning part of this is important with Sargon, king of Syria, coming to Ashdod. This happens about 711 B.C. And so at this time... Assyria is coming back to power and and Sargon is trying to assert his influence. He comes from the north and attacks the northern tribes, but he comes down through Philistia, which we talked about last week, which is to the west of Judah. And these towns are, are right next to Judah. They are not that far away. And they've seen Ashdod fall and some other Philistia towns fall. And so they're panicking. And what do we do? And their hope is maybe we make an alliance with Egypt this time. The alliance with Assyria didn't work because now they're attacking. But hey, Egypt, they're, they're our friend. What does this prophecy serve to do to that thought? Crushes it, right? Because what did Isaiah just portray to them by walking around naked for three years? This is what's going to happen to Egypt and Cush. So, where's your hope now? Because he's illustrating... Hope in man always falls. Only Yahweh saves. And so at 5 and 6, they shall be dismayed and ashamed their hope, um, because of their hope and their boast in Egypt and Cush. And so they're left. What do we do? What do we do? Now we know that Egypt eventually is taken out. In fact, right before the events of the chapters that follow. So Sennacherib, a couple things happen. Number one, Sargon ends up dying about 7.05. And remember, we're in B.C., so the dates go down as you go forward. Sort of weird to think of. But we have 7.11, Ashdod Falls, and, and Israel's hoping. We have three years where Isaiah's walking around naked to show, don't trust in Egypt. And then about 7.05, Sargon dies, the Assyrian king. And they're like, woohoo we're safe but then soon thereafter Sennacherib the next Assyrian king comes to power and he says Sargon was a wimp I'm going to show that I am powerful by wiping out in brutal fashion more nations than Sargon ever did now this is not good news for Israel for Judah this is not good news for any of the nations as we'll see today and this is where we step in and and Assyria begins to come on the move and they come down through the desert and through Arabia and we're going to see that. They actually attack Egypt and take them away captive. This comes true just a few years later. And then they come up and they're going to come after Judah and they start wiping out Judah. And the last city in Judah that's going to fall, they think, is Jerusalem. And so that's the setting that we've got to understand these verses in is Hezekiah has seen the hope of Egypt gone, which he should have known because Isaiah walked around naked for three years to show that. And he's seen city after city after city fall of Judah. And the Assyrian war machine has him in their targets. So who do you trust? And so we turn to chapter 21. And we'll hit these five oracles and we'll go through them again like we did last week, an overview. You can read the verses a little bit more on your own to to get the details. But I want us to see the big picture. The first oracle is in verses 1 through 10 of 21, the oracle of Babylon's fall. At this point, Babylon was not the enemy. They didn't know what was going to happen 150 years later. So Babylon was now their hope. Egypt fell, but Babylon, interestingly enough, had, had kept coming up against Assyria. And after Sargon died... Babylon again rose to power and rebelled against Assyria. They got some of the neighboring countries to rebel against Assyria. And so they're still out there and Assyria hasn't dealt with them completely yet. And so the idea, one of the ideas of Israel is what if we join Babylon and the surrounding nations? Now we have a chance. This is the same song, second verse. This is what happened with Ahaz. I mean, yeah, let's make a deal with another tiger another shark, and see how that turns out. And so Isaiah steps in and begins to give these sermons to say, don't do this again. Stop it. Just stop trusting anything else except God. And so we read, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. And this is descriptive language to say the whirlwinds are the Assyrian armies and they are coming in. And Babylon's a little worried about them. A stern vision has told me. The traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media, all the sighing she has caused to bring to an end. There's lots of, of descriptions here. Okay, what is he talking about? First thing, verse 21, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. What's interesting in these five oracles and four of them, he uses this cryptic language to to say what the, the country is. In this case, this is Babylon. He, he lets us know that in verse 9. So I'm not just making this up. In verse 9, um, and he said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. But he's sucking them into the story. And the wilderness by the sea, some think it's maybe the desert, um, the desert over by the Persian Gulf, because that's part of Babylon there. Others have said maybe there were some marshy lowlands. Either way, it's Babylon, and we don't quite know how they were using wilderness of the sea. But Isaiah starts by saying, okay, you want to trust Babylon? This is what's going to happen to Babylon. Let's do a case study. And he says, the traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. And that's terminology that he uses for Assyria. We see that a little bit later in Isaiah, Isaiah 31.1. And then he talks about the cities right next to Babylon. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media. All the sighing she, being Assyria, has caused, I bring to an end. And again, there's all kinds of debates. Some say, well, maybe this is later when, when media attacks Babylon. But Elam didn't exist later. So we know that this is, the timing is around Sennacherib here. And what this is saying is Babylon, um, worried about Sennacherib, is, is getting a coalition together. And they talk to Elam and one of their neighbors. They talk to media. And they say, let's go up. Let's lay seeds. Let's battle together. We can take out Assyria. There's no pride there. They're confident that they can take out the, the Assyrians. Matyar said, just as there will always be dominant powers in world history, so there will be those confident of overthrowing them. Babylon is confident of overthrowing Assyria here. And so they're, they're building this. Actually, we're going to get there, but in chapter 39 of Isaiah, we see that Babylon sent envoys to Judah. And they sent a group to, to Judah, to Hezekiah, and not only were they, they feasting, but it looks as if they were trying to bring Judah into this coalition. And so Babylon is saying, come help us. We can take Assyria out. It's not a problem. Sounds like a good plan, right? Well, we know history. Verse 3. This is Isaiah speaking. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me. Like the pangs of a woman in labor, I am bowed down so I cannot hear. I am dismayed so I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. And it's an interesting description here of Isaiah hearing the news of maybe an alliance here. And he just hurts and he aches emotionally and even physically. Because God has shown him where this ends. And, and he even says at the end of 4, the twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. And, and the idea there is probably his longing that Assyria is dead and destroyed. The twilight of Assyria. I was hoping this would happen, but now I, I'm, I'm trembling because this isn't going to happen this way. Verse 5, they prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield, which is part of the preparations for battle. And that could be this delegation that came to Judah celebrating some sort of an alliance. It could be Babylon celebrating that they are just so confident they are going to take out Assyria. See, we know this corresponds with the first oracle last week. Babylon was proud Proud of their might, proud of their glory. And their pride is part of their undoing. So Isaiah goes on, verse 6 through 10, to say, This is what I've seen. And, and I picture him saying this to Hezekiah possibly. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who cried out upon a watchtower who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen and pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of our gods he has shattered to the ground. And the prophecy here is don't trust Babylon, they will fall. It's interesting, is they hadn't fallen yet. It was were, were still going to be eleven years, twelve years before they fall. But they will fall, and so do you trust them? Do you put all your hope in them? It, it, it's like it's like trusting your weight on broken crutches. Yeah, that, that doesn't work. And, and and each of these is going to be an example of that. Let's trust a chair that has two legs broken off. Let's try. I mean, it doesn't work because they will be destroyed. And we see the response of Israel in ten. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. And we see that they are in despair, threshed and winnowed. They're at their wit's end. They're under strain. They're crushed that their hopes of an alliance with Babylon won't save them. And so the oracle of Babylon's fall, be careful who you trust. Power is attractive but temporary. Be careful who you trust. Power is attractive, but temporary. See, when we get in the middle of situations, when we get in the middle of it and we don't see a way out and we feel pressed in on every side, that is when we are most tempted to compromise. When we see, oh, that might be a way out of my situation. I might just have to compromise a little bit. I might just have to lie a little bit at work. I might just have to, to do something else that, that, that I know is wrong. But hey... I might just have to you know, have a partnership with this non-believer. And I know God says not to, but that is my way to financial success. And compromise is so much a temptation when we are in the middle of trouble and we don't see a way out. Do you know what that is? We're trying to find our own way out. And we're trying to find our own success. And we aren't looking to God. Because God will never violate his character or ask us to violate his character to accomplish his purposes. If compromise looks like the only way out, it's Babylon. And it will fall, and you will fall with it. Don't turn to Babylon, he's saying to Israel. They're doomed. Another interesting thing, at the end there, verse 10, this winnowed and crushed, it's this idea that they're crushed, that their hope is gone, that their solution is gone. And we feel that way sometimes, don't we? we, we we're, in a, we're in a difficult situation and we put all our eggs in this basket. This is going to solve it. And then it falls through. And I've seen that happen with many of you out of work. And, and it comes to this one job and, and this one interview and you're like, okay, this is what God's doing and it doesn't work out. And we're crushed because we're having a hard time trusting God. But in this case, was it good that God crushed them? Think about this for a minute. God crushed them so they wouldn't make an alliance with Babylon and they wouldn't be destroyed through that alliance. It was for their good that God took away that glimmer of hope they thought they had and said, you only can trust me. Now, when we think about that, when we have glimmers of hope in a difficult situation and it's taken away, what if that's God's blessing on us? What if that's God's protection to keep us from going down a path that would lead to a cliff? Trusting in God is means trusting in Him when He takes away hope as well as when He gives hope. Make sense? It's hard. It's hard. but That's one of the lessons from Babylon. The next oracle is just two verses. Just quick. An oracle of silence, we'll call it. God's plan is certain even if He seems silent. Now, understand this, this one's a little harder to understand. We have to know what some of the words mean. 11, the oracle considering Dumas. And Duma is actually the, the it means silence. And so the oracle of silence. One is calling me from Sierra, which is in, in Edom, which is real close just to, to the the southeast. Am I pointing right, Don, this way? This way. It's backwards. This way. I don't know. <laughs> the the picture up there is backwards from up there. But they're a close neighbor. They're just across the Jordan from um from Judah, a little bit south descendants of Esau and on again off again with Israel one of those sort of like Moab and this is an oracle concerning them and and it says "Watchmen, what time of the night Watchmen, what time of the night and the picture here is them coming to Isaiah what's going to happen to us I want to know shaking the little ball looking at the bottom and the watchman says morning comes and also the night if you will inquire inquire come back again yeah that's helpful and that's why it's called the Oracle of Silence. And basically what it's saying is morning will come, there's going to be a little bit of hope and then it's going to be followed by night. A lot of ideas of what this might be but probably this could be the defeat of Sennacherib in 701 or possibly that because we're going to find out that, it, that Sennacherib loses at Jerusalem. But then Assyria goes on to take Babylon out 11 years later. It also could be that Assyria will be defeated, but in the future Babylon will rise to power and it's just replaced by another power-hungry, brutal dictator. Morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. And the idea is that God is sometimes silent, but He's still God. He's still in control. He still knows the morning comes and then the night. He still is getting us to this point of worship before the king. Goes on the next oracle, 13 through the end of the chapter. Oracle concerning concerning Arabia. Even the best help without God will fall. Even the best help without God will fall. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of the Dadanites. To the thirsty, bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. And what he's describing here is the whole Arabian area. And this was nomadic people, and so you had. All these individual cities, they were nomadic and fiercely independent. And what's happening is they begin to be attacked like Moab was attacked. Instead of turning to Yahweh, instead of turning to the Lord, they're turning to each other. And they go from town to town and the the fugitives just keep going further south and they're seeking help from each other and, and banding together. And so maybe trusting in each other is a good plan. But then we see 16 for thus the Lord said within a year according to the years of a hired worker all the glory of Kedar which is also a term that was used to describe this reason, region will come to an end and the remainder of the archers and the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few for the Lord the God of Israel has spoken. So does that work? No trusting in in our fellow man and and the, the the good feelings of working together and coming together to solve problems ultimately doesn't bring true hope. Now, is it bad to work together? No. Is it bad to help each other? No. In fact, God instructs us as his people to come together and help each other. What's bad is when that is our trust, that is our focus, and we leave God out of the equation. But God is still sovereign. God is still directing. And they went to the wrong place for help. We should help each other, but our help is feeble. It is not enough. We need God. You know, so often, and we, we all say this, but where's the last place we go to for help sometimes? God. The last thing we do is pray because we're running around solving it. And there's so many ways that this works out. And when marriages are on the rocks, we run around and find all kinds of counselors sometimes never asking if they're believers or not. And I've got to say, if they're not believers, they can't point you back to the source of a good marriage. They can't. They may help you with some external things, but the answer is in a foundation in a marriage based on God Almighty and loving each other because God loves us and because God forgives us. And we seek help outside of God. All kinds of emotional issues. And we seek help outside of God when only from a Christian perspective is that fully solved. We get into situations where we've been treated unfairly and we take matters in our own hands and we sue and we bite and we devour each other instead of trusting in God and seeking God. We get help, but then we seek God first. Well, not then. We seek God first and we, we help each other. We acknowledge that He is the source of the resolution. And I shared camping that God has been teaching me a lot about trusting Him with with situation with Alicia and some of the, the health stuff with the wire that she swallowed. Um, this week, and many of you have been praying and I so appreciate that, and this week we went back in for x-rays and the wire is gone. And we don't know how. We've... Checked everything that needs to be checked. (laughs) And there was no wire. I don't know how. The skeptic in me says something went wrong. We missed it. She missed it. The doctors missed it. In the end, maybe God is just saying, trust me and you don't need to know how it happened. Because I am in control. And so we praise God and we trust Him, realizing that even the best help without God will fail. Are you seeking God for help? Two more nations. We'll spend a little bit of time in four and briefly mention five. Oracle considering Jerusalem. And this is the center point. This is the point that, that Isaiah has been leading up to for Hezekiah and for Hezekiah understanding what it means to trust in God. Oracle considering, concerning Jerusalem. The sin of self-sufficiency or a wrong vision. Look to God. We'll read, some of, we'll read through this quickly. Chapter 22, the Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision. Again, another cryptic um, term. We know later that this is dealing with Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is why call Jerusalem the Valley of Vision? Jerusalem is, is on a hill. It's not in a valley. Now there's valleys surrounding it. And then there are mountains that are bigger even around that. And so there's all kinds of different um, possibilities for this. Some have said, well, maybe it's because Isaiah got his vision of God in the valleys around Jerusalem. Or maybe it's because Jerusalem, in the, the context of these larger mountains, is in a valley. And that, that could be true. I, I think Isaiah did get his vision here. Uh, but I think it's a play on words. Because it's the, vi- it, it's the place, the valleys where Isaiah saw God so, so truly. But it's also probably mocking Judah a little bit. And mocking Jerusalem a little bit. Let me ask when you're in a valley, how's your vision? what do you see? You see the hills that are around you. Is that all you see? Why can't you see anything else? Because you're in a valley, right? This this makes sense. We know this. Even Yosemite, you go in Yosemite, you don't see the rest of Yosemite, which is incredible. You see this little valley, which has, has a few things to see. No, it's beautiful. But most of the, most of the authors think that this is a little bit of mocking or, or digging a knife in a little bit to say, your vision is only what, what troubles you. It's, it's so narrow. It's like when you're having problems, they're this big, right? And what do you see? Your hand. And you don't see what God is doing. And one of the reasons we think that that's how he's using this is because when he gets to the direct admonitions against Jerusalem, it's all filled with verbs about seeing. About vision, and so this is coming to to Jerusalem probably when they are in full siege mode, with Assyria around them. It says, "What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the house tops? What are you doing, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town?" And the idea is here they're celebrating about something. Could be that they're celebrating past um, victories over Assyria, or when Assyria stopped attacking but quite possibly they're celebrating here because they think they've got it covered. They think they have the defenses up that Assyria will never get in, and so they're celebrating. We're going to see that a little later in the text. You're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle, and this is where it turns serious. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Probably referring to the all of the slain that have come from Assyria's advance through Judah. And, and leaders started to run, and they were captured without a fight and taken into captivity. And in siege mode, people were dying without a fight. And in verse 4, Isaiah says, Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. In Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kura uncovered the shield. They're here, they're ready for battle. He goes on to describe it. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots. The horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah, quite possibly being Egypt. In that day, you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. And he begins here to talk about their preparations. Catch when he says, look and saw and tie that to vision. You look to the weapons of the house of the forest, a giant room that Solomon had built that was being used as an armory now. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. He's talking about preparations for the siege. And, and if you go to Israel with us, and I've mentioned this, one of the preparations Hezekiah made was for the water supply. And the water supply was outside of the city. And so they would fortify that, but then how do you get water into the city? And so Hezekiah built a tunnel. Now, keep in mind, he didn't have the tunneling machines we have now. Workers from two sides dug together and they met in the middle. Just think about that for a minute. 2,700 years ago, they met in the middle. And, and now one of the things we do is we walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and it's knee deep in flowing water from the Gihon Spring into the city. And, and that, that's what it's talking about, all these preparations. And, and we see that and in, in, I, I write down um, 2 Chronicles 32, 1 through 5. We don't have time to read it now, but write that down. Because it talks about everything Hezekiah did as Sennacherib is is coming. And he does all these things and he prepares. Verse 8, In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You trusted in your weapons. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. We know from Chronicles that he repaired them. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did, and I would highlight this and underline this, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. You looked to your own self-sufficiency and you didn't even look to God for his vision, for what he wanted. The question should have been, God told us to be here. He gave us this city. Will he protect it? Yes. That should have been the attitude. And in 12, you see what God desired. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, repenting of sin. He said, don't make preparations for battle. Get right with me. Be Walk with me. Trust me. And he talks about their, their joy. And behold, joy and gladness instead of repentance. Killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Self-sufficiency. Self, 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 self. I can do this. I've done it. I can celebrate. And if I die, oh, oh well. At least I'm partying as I do. And 14 sends chills down our back. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Oh, the dangers of putting our plans before God. The dangers of not making a priority of trusting him, of looking to him. He goes on in the rest of the chapter to give a tale of two men also that were alive during this and, and they, were, they were leaders in Hezekiah's administration. And Shebna was a story of a man who was all about himself and proud and arrogant and used his position to, to puff himself up. And he was taken down from his office by God and it was given to Eliakim. And Eliakim was a servant of God. But even this godly man that was doing great things, God says eventually he will die. Eventually he will die. And he's saying good or bad men, your own plans, all of that goes away. I am the only thing that lasts. Trust me. And I I guess my question to us as a church is are we getting this yet? It's been like 15, 20 chapters now of this. That's how important this is. Are we getting that we need to trust God? In this case, when faced with difficulty, making sure we're right with God first. Making sure we've repented from sins. Making sure it's driving us to our knees and driving us to the cross. And saying, God, I need your forgiveness. Strip away anything in me that's self-sufficient. We live in a nation where self-sufficiency and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is lauded, it is celebrated, it is considered manly. But God doesn't consider self-sufficiency manly, He considers it sin. And He will judge it. Because if we don't need God, we don't need His salvation. And we don't need His forgiveness. And we don't need the work on the cross. And we're left with nothing. The next chapter, and I'll just fill in your blank. Oracle concerning Tyre and Sidon. Don't trust in money and materialism. And he goes to the neighbor to the north, wealthy, trade-centered, money-centered, and he shows how that doesn't work either. That doesn't last. See, ultimately, what we're about to remember, what we're about to celebrate is the only source of trust that makes any sense. Isaiah is making a logical argument here by saying you trust in this, it falls. You trust in this, it falls. You trust in this, it falls. The only thing that lasts is a God who doesn't change yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A God who knows our sin and even in the middle of our rebellion and our sin sent His Son to die on the cross in our place to take the penalty for the sin, our sin. That village is true true salvation and he did it because he loves us and so today as we we take part in communion this is a remembering there's no magic powers in the crackers or the grape juice it is simply a reminder to us a a physical representation to remember that jesus died on the cross for our sins because that's our source of trust a reminder of the juice of his blood that was shed for our forgiveness and this serves to turn our vision back to god to look to god to not look at our troubles and the surroundings, but to say, there is a God above all this that wins in the end. I can trust him. And I'm going to focus more on my walk with him and salvation and repentance and and doing what's right in his eyes because this is the only thing, the only thing that matters and lasts. That's the message of this section of Isaiah. He's tearing apart every crutch we rely on and saying, it is only God. And we need to hear that. If you're believers, we need to hear that because it's so hard to keep our trust in God. If you don't know what I'm talking about this morning, you haven't heard about Jesus and haven't trusted in Him, and you've just been floundering trying to figure out this this evil world, this is the answer. This is what you need. Not the bread and and the juice, but what it represents, the cross of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, that He is our Savior. And I urge you to come and talk with one of us, one of the pastors or elders, and make today the day that you say, I'm going to start trusting in the only rock that lasts instead of my own efforts. Let's pray before we celebrate communion. Lord God, our Father, Lord, it's, it's a straightforward passage. As you tear down our, our foundations that don't last. Thank you for doing that, Because the only way to true salvation, the only way to eternity with you is through your son on the cross and giving our lives to him, repenting of our sins and making you the center of our lives, our vision for everything we do. Lord, help us to trust you. Even in some of the difficulties that I know so many are experiencing right now, help them to trust you knowing that you have a path that ultimately will bring you the most glory. And when you are glorified, oh Lord, it is good. And Lord, for those that are not seeing a way of escape, not seeing a path out, help today be about making sure they're right with you and making sure they trust you. Lord, we trust you because you are God and you are sovereign, and you are above all else. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.